Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 2, Episode 3, The Benefactor. We left the Mad Men story amidst the 1962 crash of American Airlines Flight 1. Flight 1's story touched several characters. Pete dealt with his father's passing while Duck seized on the opportunity created by the Flight 1 accident. Peggy struggled with judgment, and Don pondered the idea of loyalty, reticent to drop a client, troubled by Sterling Cooper's unfeeling self-interest. If for those who think Young shows the fading embers of Don's purpose, Flight 1 is perhaps the spark that sets off Season 2. And Episode 2.3, the Benefactor introduces more conflict through the controversial characters of Bobby and Jimmy Barrett. Melinda McGraw had recurring roles in The X-Files, Desperate Housewives, and The West Wing before she was cast as Bobby Barrett. McGraw would eventually play Barbara Gordon in the 2008 movie The Dark Knight. She lends confidence and an unmistakable voice to the Bobby Barrett character. Patrick Fischler was in Florida filming episodes of Burn Notice when his manager called him about a Mad Men audition. Fischler was unable to attend the audition, and the part nearly passed him by. He flew to L.A. a few days later and got another chance. Fischler read for the role of Jimmy Barrett in front of Matthew Weiner. New York Times writer Alex Witchell was writing a profile on Weiner at the time. He sat in for the audition and later commented that Fischler was breathtakingly good. Weiner felt he had a New York quality that made the character endearing and old-fashioned. Fischler stated that he based his portrayal on several people, including his father. My father was incredibly caustic. He would insult everybody who came in his restaurant, and people would either think it was hilarious or they'd be completely offended by it. Fischler claims he found Barrett's voice first, then studied comedians to refine the character. Chief among these was Joey Bishop, a famous member of the Rat Pack and co-host of a 60s talk show featuring a young Regis Philbin. Joey Bishop had a way where he was utterly charming, even when he was cutting people down, said Fischler. The characters of Bobby and Jimmy Barrett are among Mad Men's most controversial. Jimmy is an at-times charming, at-times horrifying insult comic, paid by Sterling Cooper to shoot TV ads for Udd's potato chips. Bobby is his wife and manager, a hyper-sexualized woman fascinated with power. They're often listed among the show's detestable characters, and have inspired countless rants from fans. Episode 2.3, The Benefactor, is their introduction. The Benefactor takes its name from a 1961 episode of the CBS drama, The Defenders. Developed in the early 60s near the end of the Hollywood blacklist, The Defenders starred E.G. Marshall and Robert Reed as defense attorneys who specialized in complex legal cases. The show portrayed many controversial topics, with episodes devoted to neo-Nazis, atheism, criminal insanity, and euthanasia. The Defenders aired between 1961 and 1965, and has since become famous for its social consciousness. The Benefactor aired on April 28, 1962, amidst controversy between the writers and the network. It portrays the trial of an abortionist and mentions the word abortion dozens of times. After the Benefactor's script was rejected by the network, the writers created an even more absurd and controversial story about cannibalism. The network had no choice but to film an episode about abortion, and many sponsors refused to advertise. Written by Matthew Weiner and Rick Cleveland and directed by Leslie Linka Glatter, the Benefactor centers around the controversial Defenders episode. It furthers Season 2's investigation of young people and young ideas, 
as Harry pitches a provocative idea, while Don deals with another advertising crisis. The benefactor portrays the rising cultural importance of television and the contentious subject of abortion. But Mad Men goes further, using the issue to examine spouses and the question, what do married people do for each other? The episode centers around several couples, the Drapers, the Cranes, Hunt and Edith Schilling, and the controversial, detestable, Bobby and Jimmy Barrett. The benefactor opens with a commercial shoot for Utz potato chips. Jimmy Barrett stands in a white tuxedo against the black backdrop of the stage, leaning against a black slate counter. The bar behind him is sparse, abstract, and geometric, a maze of thin white cabinetry and hollow rectangular openings filled with bottles. This is one of the more memorable pieces of furniture in the Mad Men series, designed by art director Dan Bishop. Jimmy looks into the camera as the crew films a take of the commercial. He's loud, diminutive but physical, with a style of comedy both silly and debonair, and a professionalism inspired by Jerry Lewis. As the camera rolls, Jimmy stands at the bar and pulls out a giant bag of Utz potato chips. Imagine my horror when a night on the town turned ugly. This is a nice place, for nice people. And the jerk behind the bar, he throws a bowl of nuts at me. What am I, a squirrel? Well, lucky for him, I bring my own wherever I go. Am I crazy? I don't think so. Just you try and stick your face into a can of nuts. Take it from the nut. Nuts are better than nuts. Jimmy isn't satisfied and asks the crew to move the camera and shoot another take. He turns to the bar for a drink, while Freddie nods off in a chair. Hunt and Edith Schilling, a heavy-set couple who own the Utz brand, enter the shoot. Jimmy spots them and grabs a microphone, pointing to Edith and comparing her to the Hindenburg. Hunt is horrified, and Ken escorts the couple off the set. Freddie finally wakes up and shouts, Jesus, Jimmy. Betty spends the morning at the stable with her friend Sarah Beth Carson. These scenes were filmed in Pasadena, California, and in one shot you can spot a palm tree. Sarah Beth talks about her anniversary and implies her marriage lacks romance. The ladies spot their friend Arthur Case, who struggles to dismount from his horse. Arthur approaches and introduces his fiancée, Tara Montague. Tara is young, blonde, and well-mannered, seemingly a parallel to Betty's character. She's frustrated by her husband, who has little idea how to handle himself on a horse. The young pair walk away, and Sarah Beth compares Arthur to Montgomery Cliff. He looks like a little boy. I guess. He reminds me of Monty Clift in A Place in the Sun, learning how to ride so he can worm his way into the upper crust. Somewhere there's a pregnant girl floating in a lake. I'm from the South. There are such people. A Place in the Sun stars Montgomery Cliff as George Eastman, the poor nephew of a wealthy family. Madman previously alluded to the film during episode 1.11, Indian Summer, when Barbara Menken talked about Don. In the movie, George flirts with high society, but struggles to escape his humble beginnings. He takes a job at his uncle's factory, and dates another laborer named Alice Tripp. But when George's ambition finally turns to success, he begins another relationship with an affluent socialite, Angela Vickers. George and Angela's plans to marry are interrupted when Alice announces she's pregnant. George fantasizes about murdering her, and Alice eventually drowns in an accident. George makes no defense, and is sentenced to death for her murder. As the scene continues, Sarah Beth reveals her fascination with Arthur. I spend too much time here, she begins. I actually dreamt about him. I think it was him, or a version of him that could ride. Before they leave, she reminds Betty that she won't be at the stables on Saturday. Sterling Cooper's mailroom boy, a young man named Todd, knocks on Harry's door and hands him a check. You'll remember this actor from his previous appearance, also in Indian Summer, 
when he delivered Adam's package to Don's office. Todd leaves, and Harry notices Ken Cosgrove's envelope stuck to his own. He opens it and sees that Ken makes $300 per week. He calls his wife, Jennifer, who rests in bed at home, a Coca-Cola bottle on her nightstand. She tells Harry to demand more money. Season 2 differentiates between many of Mad Men's secondary characters, and the benefactor makes significant contributions for Harry Crane. It shows him sharing an office with Warren McKenna in Sterling Cooper's media department. He's surrounded by charts and tables of data. His role is highly focused on money. But he's also focused on his own success, and he's outraged at Ken's salary. Harry struggles to break the news to his wife, who fears he's had another affair. But Jennifer grows stronger and encourages him. You have a wife and a baby on the way, she reminds. It's fascinating how endearing Harry can seem in the early seasons of Mad Men. He repeatedly acts out, most notably in episode 1.12, Nixon vs. Kennedy, when he sleeps with Hildy at the office party. What sets Harry apart is his guileless nature. Harry hasn't really figured out how to lie like other Mad Men characters, and he struggles to keep secrets from his wife. He's straightforward, at times honest to a fault, and lacking the self-assuredness of other characters. Throughout the phone call, Harry seems insecure. He needs Jennifer to tell him that he has value. After hanging up with his wife, Harry visits Sal in the art department. Sal erases the words Mohawk Airlines from a drawing. It's a small insert, but it shows that Sterling Cooper is reusing existing artwork for the upcoming pitch to American. Harry worries about Ken's check and asks for a new envelope. Just throw it away, Sal suggests. He bristles when Harry reveals the $300 per week number. There's nothing you can do. That's why you don't tell your wife. He notes that media is a meritocracy, and he asks what makes Harry essential to the agency. But isn't media a meritocracy? Do you think that? What's that supposed to mean, anyway? I have plenty of merit. Merit defined within reason. As in this place can't run without you. Well, how the hell do I do that? Then you're worth every penny they're paying you. Thanks, Sal. That morning, Don sits in an empty movie theater. He watches a French film, a black-and-white photo montage, set to the voice of a female narrator who reads Ballade des Dames du Trompe Jadis, The Ballad of Ladies of Times Gone By, a poem by Francois Villon. Villon is one of the best-known French poets of the Middle Ages, and Ballade celebrates women from French history. La reine blanche the Queen Blanche, white as a lily, who sang with a siren's voice, Bertha Bigfoot, Ali, Beatrix, Alice Arambor, who ruled over the Mayan, and Joan, the good woman of Lorraine, whom the English burned in ruin. Where are they, O sovereign virgin? O where are the snows of yesteryear? The film resembles the style of the French Left Bank movement. The Left Bank was a sect of the French New Wave, which emerged in the late 1950s and rejected traditional filmmaking. And with its inclusion, we've reached the point in the Mad Men series when I get to discuss the French New Wave. On March 30th, 1948, Alexander Astruc published The Birth of a New Avant-Garde, The Camera Stylo, in the French magazine L'Ecran, literally, The Screen. Astruc argued that cinema was a means of expression on the same level as art or literature. His work inspired the concepts of the politique des auteurs, known in America as auteur theory. Auteur theory centered around the auteur, or author, a filmmaker with a recognizable style seeking to capture a specific theme. You may recognize the qualities of auteur theory in works by modern filmmakers like Christopher Nolan, Joel and Ethan Cohen, Quentin Tarantino, and even Matthew Weiner. The term La Nouvelle Vague was first used by French film critics writing for the magazine Cahier du Cinéma. 
These critics rejected old notions of quality and craftsmanship in favor of experimentation. They were inspired by the 1953 film Little Fugitive, about which François Truffaut would say, Our French new wave would have never come into being if it hadn't been for the young American, Morris Engel, who showed us the way to independent production. Many new wave critics started making their own films, adopting unconventional cinematography, editing, and narration, and exploring themes associated with French existentialism and absurdism. New wave filmmakers experimented with long tracking shots, jump cuts, and breaking the 180-degree rule of camera movement. Their films often used improvised, low-budget equipment. Their dialogue was often spontaneous, focused on individual experiences, and at times directly addressing the audience. Many short documentaries produced by the New Wave adopted the style of photomontage, seen in The Benefactor. New Wave cinema became popular amidst the socio-economic recovery of post-World War II France. The movement appealed to younger audiences, disillusioned with historical tradition, who rejected France's more conventional narrative filmmaking. The famous and financially successful directors associated with the Cahiers du Cinema formed the right bank. Their peers had arrived at a similar style of experimental filmmaking, though they lacked notoriety and identified more with the political left. These were the left bank directors, among them Elaine René, Agnes Varda, and Chris Marker. Their films, such as Le Jeté, Hiroshima Mon Amour, and Last Year at Marienbad, have been viewed fondly by history. The film Don watches in The Benefactor is one of Mad Men's great unsolved mysteries. I and many others have endeavored to identify it, with no success, and I'm inclined to believe it was created by the Mad Men crew for this episode, borrowing from the left bank style. About the film, Matthew Weiner has stated, It's a very rare French film, a film by a famous director. I won't tell you the name. I won't say the title. I'll never tell, because I don't have the rights to it. Evoking the style of left-bank cinema furthers Mad Men's investigation of youth, fulfillment, and the creative process. Don immerses himself in younger, more avant-garde ideas, trying to recreate the spark of youth. And themes from French absurdism are present in his story. He's a man struggling to find meaning in his life, a man who perhaps carries an unacknowledged death wish, whose own name is a haphazardly constructed lie. Don returns to the agency that afternoon. He's immediately visited by Roger, who introduces the episode's central conflict. Utz is going to lose Jimmy, and we're going to lose Utz, he says. Ben Cosgrove enters, then Freddy, then Duck. Blame is passed around, along with several accusations about Freddy's drinking. Don tries to deflect focus, but Ken mentions that he was out for the entire morning. Don's going to fix it, Roger says. He knows what that nut means to Utz, and what Utz means to us. Roger lingers as the others leave. Where were you? he asks. At the printer, Don says. Roger looks at him accusingly. You should tell your girl that. Don calls Lois into his office and suggests she's not a good fit for secretarial work. Lois doesn't immediately understand she's being fired, and Don tells her to ask for a reassignment. Stick to the switchboard, he says. The scene was inspired by something Matthew Weiner witnessed earlier in his career when a person was fired without realizing it. Lois walks away dejected. Warren McKenna leaves the office that evening, suspicious that Harry is still working. Played by John Douglas Williams, Warren works in Sterling Cooper's media department. He's a rotund man, memorable for his laziness and his infatuation with Joan. He appears in only two episodes of Mad Men, but Warren is one of the more recognizable minor characters at Sterling Cooper. When Warren leaves, Harry dials his friend Flatty at CBS. Flatty sits in a basement office, surrounded by papers, orange soda, a package of cookies, and a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. He's drowning in work, and tells Harry about the ad crisis around the Defenders. The show is set to run an episode about abortion, and sponsors are bailing. Harry says he has a sponsor in mind. Don enters the following morning. 
He's greeted by Joan, who says she'll be his temporary secretary. Joan seems the perfect secretary for Don, a man becoming more bored and less interested in his work. I'll look for another Miss Olson, she promises. No, Don insists. I want someone who will be happy with that job. He asks if Jimmy Barrett is shooting that day. Later that afternoon, Don finds Bobby Barrett at the commercial set. This scene is shot entirely in silhouette, with Don and Bobby veiled in darkness against the backlit bar. Bobby presents herself as Jimmy's wife and manager. Don asks for an apology. These people are his benefactors, he says, like the Medicis of Florence. Bobby asserts that Jimmy can't be fired because of his contract. Don tries to coerce an apology, but she seems unintimidated. Jimmy doesn't have a lot of patience for business, or for businessmen, she says, laying out the conditions for an apology. He has to know he has a shot at your wife. Bobby moves to leave and Don offers her a ride, desperate to resolve the situation. They're caught in the rain outside the printer's office, and Bobby laughs as Don escorts her to his car. It's a fun bit of irony for Don, who often lies about being at the printer's when he's with his mistresses or alone, watching Pinocchio. Hail patters against the windshield as they sit in the car. We tested every type of mothball to make the hail look right, said director Leslie Linka-Gladder. Bobby leans over and kisses Don. He resists for a moment. I don't want to do this, he says, pulling away. Doesn't feel that way, Bobby replies. Don arrives at home that evening, where he immediately moves to the sink and washes his mouth out with soap. He pours a drink and sits at the kitchen table. Sally begs to go to the stables that Saturday, but Betty says no. She doesn't want her kids encroaching on her life away from home. Betty hands Don his watch. I had it monogrammed, she says. He smiles appreciatively, then looks away. The camera focuses on him as he reflects on the moment. He realizes that Betty is the woman in his life, the mother of his children, and the wife, who supports him unendingly. And he knows he's made a mistake by being unfaithful. Betty finds Arthur at the stable the following Saturday. He's alone, uninterested in riding. Betty says the horse needs direction and challenges Arthur to be more assertive. She pulls on the horse's reins. She needs to be told what to do. Don't be afraid, Betty says. Here Madman uses the horse to represent Arthur's lack of confidence, especially around his in-laws. Arthur implies that he doesn't fit into Tara's wealthy family. All the men in her family ride like this. They also don't work, so maybe I'm wrong about it. Don spends Saturday with his kids, who watch Disorder in the Court, a Three Stooges short released in 1936. He moves to his office and dials Bobby Barrett, who answers from a hotel room where she lays alone in bed. Don brings up Jimmy's apology as Bobby teases him and tries to seduce him. What do you want, he says, trying to end their involvement. But Bobby grows more fascinated as Don tries to distance himself. He mentions he's at home with his children. I like being bad, she replies, then going home and being good. Arthur approaches Betty at the barn later that day. A two-shot shows Betty tending to her horse with Arthur in the background, the racked focus shifting subtly between them. Arthur discusses his dissatisfaction with Tara, your fiancé wouldn't like you talking to another woman about this, Betty cautions. He mentions F. Scott Fitzgerald's novella, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz, about John Unger, a poor teenager sent to a boarding school for Boston's wealthy families. At school, Unger meets his roommate Percy, the quiet son of a wealthy Montana family. He eventually learns that Percy's father, Braddock Washington, owns a diamond large enough to make him the richest man alive. But Washington has no way to sell the diamond without devaluing the entire market, making the stone effectively worthless. Unger falls in love with Percy's sister, Jasmine, but is appalled by her family's greed. Tara's family, like the Washingtons, is wealthy beyond need, and Arthur struggles to understand his place in her life. But he sees something different in Betty, and despite her protestations, she welcomes his attention. You are so beautiful. Thank you. So different than Tara. 
Tara is very beautiful, you know that. She doesn't need anything. What she does need, anyone can get her. Betty insists that Arthur is nervous about getting married. She suggests that Tara will mean much more to him over time. But Arthur continues to pursue her, cornering her in a small room of the barn. But I think about you. Why would you do that? Arthur, I like being around you. Don't say anything to ruin that. You're so profoundly sad. No. It's just my people are Nordic. Arthur leans in to kiss her, but Betty stops him. Don't tell me what to do, he says, before trying once more. She again denies him. You're so profoundly sad, he repeats. You're wrong, Betty says. I'm grateful. She lights a cigarette as she walks away, her hands trembling with nervous excitement. Madman uses Arthur's character as a younger parallel to Don. The men share several similarities. Both come from poverty and marry into wealthy families. Like Don, Arthur struggles to find his place in that family. His wife Tara bears an intentional resemblance to Betty. And like Don, he seeks the affection of other women, perhaps feeling his place in Tara's life is superficial. Betty seeks out his attention, opting to be alone with him rather than spending the day with Sally. While she's yet to cheat, Betty is no longer a passive victim of Don's infidelity, and throughout season two, Mad Men will use Arthur and Betty's relationship to portray her growing independence. She doesn't need anything, and what she does need, anyone can get her, Arthur says of Tara. His words force us to examine one of the benefactor's central questions. What do married people do for each other? Despite his charm, Arthur still struggles with insecurity. He wants to feel needed. This same sentiment often motivates Don, a man who constantly seeks self-assurance despite his creative success and relationships with beautiful women. And in Arthur's words, we understand Don's dissatisfaction with Betty. She's the idealized woman, beautiful, from a wealthy family, but she doesn't need Don. She can never make him feel important in the way he wants. Betty returns from the stables and finds Don in the living room. He invites her to dinner at Lutess, hoping she can smooth over the Ut situation. I need you to be shiny and bright, Don says. I need a better half. The spontaneity turns to disappointment as she realizes it's a meeting, not a date. We'll go alone another time, Don reassures. Sterling Cooper meets with Elliot Lawrence of Belgeli Lipstick the following Monday. You'll remember Elliot as the Belgeli executive who tried to seduce Salvatore in episode 1.8, The Hobo Code. He watches the Defenders episode, the camera looking back at the projector in a shot reminiscent of season 1's carousel scene. The reel stops, and Harry speaks up. Top 20 show. Prime time for pennies on the dollar. And it's the perfect match for Belgeli lipstick. Really? How does that work? Controversy means viewers. Women will find a way to watch this. Elliot asks for Peggy's opinion, and she agrees. What's better than tears to make a girl want to hear she can be beautiful, Don persuades. But Elliot eventually rejects the idea, bringing up Belgeli's more conservative principles. Belgeli is a family company. This is not wholesome. Well, there are limits to what you can get out of daytime. I don't want Belgeli to be part of this debate. Frustrated by the decision, Harry speaks up, emphasizing the abortion issue's popularity and suggesting the episode will attract attention. He makes a compelling argument that's eventually shut down. So you think girls who buy lipstick aren't going to be interested in this? I don't care where they stand. So it's political. Politics are in. Women will be watching. Young women. We should make some quick historical notes about the abortion debate. 
Before 1973's landmark Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade, abortion was outlawed entirely in 30 U.S. states. Only four states allowed abortion by choice, New York, Alaska, Washington, and Hawaii. The United States recorded 292 legal abortions in 1962. But abortion was happening, despite the laws. Some have estimated that as many as 1.2 million abortions were performed each year. And though the Roe v. Wade ruling would not come for another decade, 1962 became significant to the abortion conversation due to Sherry Chesson. Chesson had taken the drug thalidomide throughout her pregnancy and knew her child would suffer fetal deformities. She contacted the Arizona Republic, who published an expose on thalidomide and revealed Chesson's decision to abort her pregnancy. Chesson would lose her job and require FBI protection due to the controversial story. She was denied abortions within the United States and Japan, and eventually traveled to Sweden to obtain a legal abortion. Abortion entered the public discussion amidst growing political interest, specifically among women. Throughout the 40s and 50s, women were about 10% less likely to vote than men in U.S. elections. But by 1960, that difference was cut in half. Historians have frequently associated education with long-term political involvement. Women of the 60s were becoming more educated. They were attending college, where they were exposed to modern movements like French feminism, and they began to recognize their power to drive social change. Mad Men's voice of young women, Peggy, agrees that other girls will be watching, but her participation throughout the meeting is half-hearted, and when she's asked to speak, she hesitates. Despite her confident writing, Peggy's ideas about the world still seem unsettled. Throughout season two, Peggy seems torn between the more traditional values of her family and the more progressive values of her generation. Remember that this is 1962. While social change is coming, issues like abortion are still contentious. Many characters like Peggy come from conservative upbringings. Episode 2.2, Flight 1, introduced Peggy's Irish Catholic background, ending with her sitting in church. And this scene from The Benefactor leaves us to speculate if she would have aborted Pete's child. The Belgelie meeting also shows the rising importance of media and Harry's unique understanding of television. Elliot recognizes this creative thinking. I wish we were a different type of company, he says. As the men exit, Elliot shares a passing interaction with Sal, who's still anxious about being outed. Harry is called into Roger's office, where he worries he'll be fired. But Roger applauds his initiative. I think someone told on you, and it backfired. Mitch. Doesn't matter. Cooper thought it showed initiative. So, you're in here now. I'm smiling. What do you want? Harry stands motionless in the middle of the office as Roger relaxes, his gray suit cast against a black desk centered in the frame, backlit by the dim light of the window behind him. Harry continues clumsily. He clearly doesn't know how to negotiate. He starts by asking for a promotion. Uh, well, <clears throat> I guess, uh, for one thing, I think that we should have a television department. All the other agencies have them, and I think I should run it. You are now the head of the television department, which is comprised solely of you. Anything else? Well, actually, um, <clears throat> I think I deserve a raise. Roger gets up and pours Harry a drink. He walks over, hands Harry the glass, and starts bargaining. How much do you make? $200 a week, plus drinks. Give me a number. Uh, how about 310? <laughs> no one makes that around here, not even close. How about two and a quarter? Say yes. Yes. I'll throw a new business card. You drive a hell of a bargain. Harry tells his wife about the promotion that evening. She's excited and asks about the TV show. 
You wouldn't like it, Harry says, as Jennifer knits a pair of yellow socks for their expected child. He makes a racist joke about the baby being Asian, and his wife laughs. We're proud of you, she says. The conclusion of the benefactor unfolds over dinner at the French restaurant Lutesse. Located at 249 East 50th Street, Lutesse opened in February 1961 and operated for 43 years before closing in 2004. It was part of Les Six, a group of New York restaurants famous for fine dining. Mad Men repeatedly mentions the restaurant throughout season two. Don and Betty have dinner with the Shillings. Betty wears an innocently beautiful pink dress, while Edith is dressed in pure white with an ornately feathered hat. Betty makes small talk, and Don insists that Jimmy will come. When the Barretts arrive, Jimmy is captivated by Betty. He compares Don to actor Gregory Peck in the movie Gentleman's Agreement. Jimmy orders a drink and flirts with Betty, his apology unspoken. Bobby leaves for the restroom, and Don follows. He finds her in the hallway, smoking in front of a mirror. Don demands Jimmy apologize for insulting Edith, but Bobby wants to negotiate. I think an apology, and a public one like this one, has to be worth $25,000. Don grabs her by the hair and reaches up her skirt. I will ruin him, Don warns. He wipes his hand on her green dress and walks away, returning to the table. When she returns, Jimmy makes a heartfelt apology. There's the guy under the lights and there's me, Jimmy says. He's made me rich, but he hasn't made me very nice. Edith Schilling seems understanding. I know it's what you do. I just don't have the stomach for it, she says. Jimmy bites his fist. The cue was written in the script. Don stares into the distance as he and Betty drive home that evening. Betty tears up, thrilled that Don let her into his world. When I said I wanted to be part of your life, this is what I meant. We make a great team. The episode fades to credits with the crescendo of the Jack Jones song, Lollipops and Roses. The Benefactor won't top many lists of Mad Men's best episodes. The story is small, centered around Don and Harry. There are a few scenes with Joan or Peggy, and Pete is entirely absent. But the episode retains the quality characters and thematic cohesion we expect from Mad Men. Most notable are the introductions of Jimmy and Bobby Barrett. In Jimmy, we see the embodiment of Mad Men's overarching themes about the personal consequences of professional success. Jimmy is consumed by a persona that makes him famous, but also makes him unlikable. His celebrity comes at the cost of insulting other people. And throughout The Benefactor, Jimmy struggles to turn off the unlikable parts of himself that make him successful under the lights. He's honest, brutally honest, and Mad Men portrays the problems caused by this honesty. While Jimmy is the face under the lights, Bobby is the perhaps more deplorable character managing his career behind the scenes. Mad Men poignantly expresses this contrast through cinematography. Contrast Don and Bobby's silhouetted meeting with the benefactor's opening scene, brightly lit, with Jimmy dressed in a clean white tuxedo, cast against a black backdrop. While Jimmy Barrett faces others with brutal, offensive candor, Bobby is much more underhanded. She's cynical and manipulative, inspired by qualities of French feminism, and she shares some of Don's unapologizing self-interest. Many fans dislike Bobby's character, and there are some critical questions to answer about her. Why is she so chaotically attracted to Don? Why is Don attracted to her? I think Don and Bobby's interactions reflect a theme that ties the Benefactor's seemingly unconnected subplots. Power. Throughout the Benefactor, Mad Men's characters grasp for more influence, more control, or more money. The episode repeatedly portrays authority in interactions like Harry and Roger or Don and Lois and Mad Men's emphasis on power feels almost heavy-handed in the interactions between Don and Bobby. Bobby's desire for Don is not given much motivation in The Benefactor. We can guess that she's attracted to Don for all the typical reasons. Don, meanwhile, sees Bobby's attempts to manipulate him as a challenge. 
It's fair to wonder why Don would waste his time on this woman. Throughout season 2's initial episodes, Mad Men portrays the growing boredom of Don's life. He's jaded by the simplicity of work and the tedium of family. Bobby Barrett enters Don's life as he desperately seeks out conflict to feel the newness he describes at the end of For Those Who Think Young. But Don will struggle to control the Barretts throughout season 2, as they threaten his life's tenuous balance, Bobby through her uncontrollable ambition, and Jimmy through his uncontrollable honesty. The conflict they introduce will irrevocably change Don's character. The Benefactor is also noteworthy for its expansion of Harry Crane. Harry stumbles around Sterling Cooper's politics throughout the episode, but while he's sincere to a fault, Harry acts with the same manipulative self-interest prevalent in Mad Men's characters. His scene with Roger is one of the highlights of season 2. This scene is so powerful because it subverts the traditional status dynamic between boss and employee. Harry's too naive to realize the power he holds though, and he falls for Roger's bluffing, leaving the office with a meaningless promotion and a tiny raise. Harry's promotion won't remain meaningless though, and the benefactor hints at this, depicting the growing importance of television in advertising and culture. Mad Men introduced media buying in season 1, when Sterling Cooper bought ad placements for Secor laxatives. It's an essential but unexplored aspect of the ad business that the benefactor details more explicitly, and Harry's supervision of television will be consequential throughout the Mad Men series. The advertising business is changing alongside the American culture, and Harry has attached himself to a medium that will dominate advertising's future. Harry's partially motivated by his wife, who reassures him that he's important. The benefactor portrays similar acts of devotion across several marriages. Betty has Don's watch monogrammed and later helps him with a business problem. Hunt threatens to pull his business after Jimmy insults his wife. I think Mad Men makes a powerful statement about marriage here, that despite numerous temptations, despite betrayal and dishonesty, we need the support of a partner, the reassurance that we have value, to instill confidence and assuredness. It's a fitting thematic statement for an episode named The Benefactor, literally a person who gives a gift. This episode spends significant time casting Mad Men's low-status characters, Jimmy, Harry, and Edith, against its more manipulative, high-status characters like Roger, Don, and Bobby, and it repeatedly shows how a partner's devotion can elevate these people. But despite its strong thematic statement, The Benefactor is most memorable for lacking continuity with Mad Men's previous episodes. Few of the problems introduced in Flight 1 are directly confronted. The scope of this episode is small. It mainly stands by itself rather than building on Mad Men's established story. I can't be too critical though, because The Benefactor succeeds at what it aims to do, and Mad Men's next episode, Three Sundays, will pick up several pieces of its story. As Jimmy pitches a new TV show, Sterling Cooper prepares for the American Airlines pitch, and more of Peggy's secrets are exposed.